Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Ruron Living, Adam Greenberg. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Renee Michelle, the author of Battle Scars Are Beautiful From Victim to Victory. She is a survivor of sexual abuse that began in childhood and is committed to teaching others how to both identify and prevent childhood abuse. As a speaker, she shares with individuals, organizations, and communities how lack of self-worth, dysfunctional family systems, and maladaptive thinking all contribute to children not being able to identify or protect themselves from dangerous situations. Renee is the first in her family to attend university and after achieving her degree, went on to earn qualifications in counseling, management, and advanced resume writing, where she helps others recognize their greatness and communicate it effectively to advance her clients into their greatness. She is the successful owner and director of Career Path Resumes and the director of a crisis care community outreach organization. Today, she continues to work in the child safety and disability sectors. It is my honor to welcome Renee to the Get Up Nation podcast, as she is a profound example of what Get Up Nation is. She refused to allow experiences of domestic violence, bankruptcy, abusive marriage, repeated sexual assaults, and episodes of mental illness define her life. I can't wait to share with you Renee's fierce and resilient voice that will help you find the inner tenacity you may have never known you had. Renee, welcome to the Get Up Nation podcast. Hey, Ben, how are you? Lovely to talk to you. First, I want to make sure that listeners are aware that we're going to be discussing realities in our world which may not be appropriate for children to hear. And for survivors of exploitation, I want to ensure that you practice self-care, should you listen to this, in order to ensure your health. Make sure you're getting any help you need, and if you need to take breaks during listening to this podcast episode, please do so. Renee, first, let me express my respect and admiration for you. You're a survivor in the truest sense of the word. It's amazing that you're not only alive today, but you're thriving. You have a new book coming out called Battle Scars Are Beautiful, From Victim to Victory. You're inspiring others. You're speaking life into those whose experience being alive is wrought with suffering, confusion, shame, and trauma. You're guiding others out of very troubling places into their greatness and living your truth with profound depth and authenticity. Will you share with us to start where you currently live and where you currently serve others today? Absolutely. Yes, so I live over here in Australia, uh, in the state of Queensland, and in a little place called the Sunshine Coast, and it's a beautiful coastal community, and um, yeah, it, it's a lovely place to live, I, I can't complain. 
So as far as serving and reaching my community, I'm originally from Sydney. That's where it all began. So as I started my healing journey, my initial audience was in rehabilitation centres and psychiatric hospitals where I worked. And then it extended to, I guess, a greater community as word of mouth spread and more people were put in contact with me that may have had a similar experience growing up. Now I'm very, very blessed to have a global audience uh, via amazing people like yourself, Ben, who hear about my story, have me on their podcast, and I also mentor survivors online. And that, again, has quite a global reach. So I've been very, very honoured now to be mentoring survivors of abuse for around 15 years. Amazing. What an essential service that you provide. Let's begin by sharing what your early childhood was like before you were nine years old. Yeah, look, um, I grew up in small, very small country towns where everybody knew everybody. Nothing was private. Uh, And because they were quite small, they were also quite isolated. Now, my family was quite dysfunctional. And at around the age of nine or ten, my mother developed a drinking problem due to a family trauma. And unfortunately, her ability to make wise choices and decisions uh, was quite impaired. And that involved entering quite destructive relationships. Unfortunately, what that meant for me, I'm the youngest of five children. My four older sisters all moved out of home. There's quite a, quite a large age gap between me and my sisters. And I was left at home basically to fend for myself, which meant dealing with mum's inability to be available for me emotionally. And with each relationship she entered, unfortunately, a lot of those men uh, abused me, both sexually and physically. And for me, not having anyone in that immediate environment that I felt safe enough to to tell or to turn to, I did not disclose any of that abuse. So I kept it hidden for many, many years. And my understanding is at age nine, you experienced your first assault and then experienced a rape at age 12. It occurred in your own home by a family friend. So certainly any sense of safety and security was affected because... This was done by someone who is a part of your family and in your own home. Is that accurate? It is accurate, Ben. Unfortunately, yes. Um, We we had a family member in the home one evening uh, who made their way into my bedroom, and that was the the night that I was first raped by that individual. And again, you know, I had my mum directly across the hall from me. But, you know, most of us know about that fight, flight, and freeze response and and for me because I'd incurred abuse from such a young age my physical reaction was always to freeze so in that moment feeling completely incapacitated and just overwhelmed by fear that was my physical reaction and unfortunately it happened the very next night yet again I'm glad you brought up the freeze concept here I, I also wanted to focus on that a little bit the fight flight or freeze uh, concept when people experience traumatic events particularly with regard to sexual assault. Another guest on Get Up Nation, a survivor of military sexual trauma, shared a similar experience of freezing during the assault. And people and survivors themselves who may not initially understand what's happening and how their brains are protecting them during the event from potentially being increasingly physically harmed or brutalized, often they can shame themselves or for, quote, uh, not doing anything or not fighting back or fleeing the area. Will you help us understand what's happening during the concept of freezing during trauma? Absolutely. 
absolutely. Look, our brain, our brain is an amazing, an amazing thing. And this is something that I encourage a lot of young girls that I speak to that have a lot of shame and guilt over the fact that they did breathe. And what I explain to them is that in that moment, particularly when you're a, a when you have a young brain and it's not fully formed or in any moment where you're just completely overwhelmed and, and taken off guard at what is happening in that moment, your brain instantly recognises in that situation and interprets the situation that this is too much for me and I may not survive. Hmm. So in that millisecond, it shuts itself off. It goes straight into survival mode. And that's why I say to young people, your brain is an amazing thing and it kept you alive. So for me, in my situation, yes, for years I had so much compounded guilt and shame. Once I understood the effects of trauma and how your brain interprets a particular situation and decides in that moment, this is too much, I may not get out of this, I cannot do this. So therefore... The only way that I can survive is going to shut off mode. We freeze, we're like that proverbial deer in headlights and it's almost as though we, we adapt to our environment in that second. Mm. And like I said, later in life I became to appreciate and even embrace my freeze response because it did get me out of so many situations looking back in hindsight. So in that moment my brain did the only thing it could and it shut off. Upon being assaulted, you discovered something else about the way our minds and bodies deal with pain. Uh, you were in immense physical pain uh, from one of the assaults, and you began to, to strike your own head against the wall in a way to ease your pain uh, that you were experiencing in other parts of your body. Um, as we deal with intense traumas in our lives and how self-harm frequently becomes a way of coping, I think how you articulate this is very powerful. Will you share how one way you eased your physical pain in one place of your body was to harm another place. Uh, will you go into that yeah. a little bit? Sure, sure. So, as I said, uh, I was abused in my home when I was 12, uh, the first night and then again, unfortunately, the very next night. Now, at school the next day, at one point in time, I excused myself to go to the bathroom. And as I experienced that physical pain, in the area of which I was abused, you know, in, 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 you know, in my groin region, I rushed to the toilet and in that instant, without even thinking, without even hesitating, I locked myself in, a, in the cubicle in the girls' toilet there and smashed my head quite hard against that concrete wall. And in that moment, the, the pain travelled from that area of shame and it exited through the top of my head where, I, where my forehead had connected with the wall. And it was like this moment of liberation because where I felt that shame, which was, you know, in my groin area, it left my body in that moment when I physically hit my head against the wall. And I did it again and the same thing happened. And what that showed me was, hang on, I, I could transfer this physical pain to another area of my body and feel this instant release. It was like this pressure coming off my shoulders and that became habitual for me. As soon as I felt pain, physical pain in my body or, or had a memory that took me back to that horrible place, that moment in time, 
I began to either, I would punch myself in the face, striking myself with my fist, headbutt my head against the closest object, usually a wall, and then a few years later it became to actually cutting my skin with razor blades. It was was just this release that I felt in other parts of my body to take me out of that painful moment, that painful memory of the past. Let me again express your amount of insight and the depth of your self-awareness. We'll we'll go into how powerful your voice is and in how you serve others because of your ability to understand with such depth and precision all of these experiences that you had. But, you know, there'll just be times, (laughs) forgive me during this interview, where I'll just express my, my awe of you. And I would just like to go further here um, to draw from your insights to say, uh, you know, many in the health community, they separate mental and physical health at times, and, and that's debatable about whether that should be done or, in, or not in that separation. But as a result of the trauma and suffering you experienced as a child, you developed symptoms in what the health community may describe as your physical health. Will you share some of the physical symptoms you experienced as a result of your mind and your body uh, trying to make sense of what happened to you and trying to cope with the trauma of what happened? Look, and over the years, they they did change depending on on what situation I was in at the time. And, you know, straight off, as soon as you talk about that, then I can just remember just being so disorganized in thought all Hmm. the time. Hmm. I was just so hypervigilant, you know, just sort of waiting for something else to go wrong around me. So my brain was just constantly at that hyper level. And at a young age, when you have so much going on, you know, I, I was exhausted, I had no energy, I developed depression, I didn't sleep well, I've been an insomniac since I was a very, very young girl. I've had a lot of digestion issues, I had chronic vertigo for so, so many months just from carrying that constant tension in my body and never having any type of self-care understanding, let alone regime or routine. Mm-hmm. So my body was just neglected for so many years. Um, physical issues, of course, led to other areas of trying to cope, and that's when we start making very poor choices when it comes to, to looking after your body. And my, all of my choices were reactive always reacting to a situation. There was no proactiveness, there was no planning, there was no ability to foresee what was going on, let alone to sit back and say, okay, I need to need to figure out how to do this better. It was just this constant state of reacting. So all of those health issues lead to negative coping mechanisms, which unfortunately for me led to many years of drug and alcohol addiction later on in life. You've spoken in the past about how, as a child, Part of your process of dealing with all of these things was experiencing an intense need to please others. And as you grappled with this sense of feelings of shame and worthlessness, you know, you've described how far away you felt from your authentic self. Will you share some of how shame and a sense of that worthlessness were created in you and how this led to an intense need to please other people? Definitely. So... I spoke about, you know, my early abuse starting at around age 10. Now, one of my mother's partners, he was the first man to start physically abusing me at age 10. And his words every single day were very tormenting to me. And it was, you know, curse words. It was saying that I was 
stupid, that I was unloved, that I was disgusting, that I was unwanted and unlovable. And so those words were already at such a young age, followed by physical abuse. Now that already showed me and started to tell me, well, maybe I am unlovable. Maybe nobody does want me. My father's not here anymore. My mother's not even aware of what's going on. Does she even care? Because, as I said, she was not emotionally available for me. She was dealing with her own internal pain. So these thoughts were already compounding in my mind. So with every physical interaction that I had with another of my mother's partners that, that was negative, it just, again, compounded those thoughts of, of shame and I'm not worthy and nobody's seeing what's going on here. Does anybody care? And I don't even have anybody to talk to. Now, attach that to the freeze response and the shame and guilt that I felt from that, it was just another layer upon another layer. So my identity was so distorted, it was just totally decimated and I had no idea who I was, I had no understanding that I was valuable, I did not see myself as a valuable person, I almost saw myself as a, a an object that was just used and abused at people's expense, you know, and that instantly makes you feel, particularly as a young girl, that you just hold no value to anybody. And my identity, I, I avoided mirrors for many, many years. The reflection that I saw if I ever looked in a mirror was disgusting. And, and the negative self-talk, which was that instant reaction when I saw myself, was ugly, worthless, disgusting, unloved, unlovable. You know, and just so, so much negative internal dialogue. And with every passing negative event that happened, reinforced that thinking. So I went through the majority of my life firmly believing those words that were spoken over me and then the words and the beliefs that I myself adapted for my own identity. And we are going to get into some of the profound changes that have happened in your life and really share with people your profound resilience and power and brilliance here. But I just wanted to ask one more question that really delves into your abuse and, and your trauma here before we transition into that. I was just hoping you would share some about the oppressive power that exists in isolation and secrecy when it comes to exploitation and abuse. Yeah, so not having any safe person in my immediate environment. And when I experienced these things, it was the 1980s and, and early 90s. And in those days, particularly in Sydney where I grew up, I never, ever heard anybody talk about sexual or physical abuse from any type of public arena. I definitely didn't see any campaigns or ads on TV. It was definitely never brought into the school system or spoken about in our curriculum in any type of safe program that was educating children that these types of things were definitely bad and there was people out there willing to help you. So. Growing up in the country towns and then not having anybody in my family to talk to and then the abuse happening in my own home, there, I grew up never believing that the world was a safe place. And that led me into making and putting myself into situations that were, again, not self. So this constant state of isolation, fear and secrecy, it was so insular and it kept me so tiny and I would never, ever have thought to put my hand up and divulge what was happening to me because I had never seen or heard anybody else do that. That completely cut me off 
from any type of belief that I could do anything beyond myself to stop what was happening. I myself knew I wasn't strong enough at that point in time and nobody that I could see on my periphery was strong enough either or even willing or available for me to go to. So I hid my secret of abuse for 26 years. I, I didn't tell a soul. And this is something now that I'm so passionate about is breaking down those walls of isolation and making trauma and abuse and reaching out a, a moment of strength, a message of strength. I firmly believe that if you're someone who reaches out and puts your hand up and divulges what is happening to you, you are the strongest, strongest person on the planet, that it is not a sign of weakness. It takes so much strength and courage to be a person that reaches out and says, I need help. You've described in prior interviews that as you attempted to navigate the effects of the trauma you experienced, you felt, quote, a tenacity that came in waves. You described it as waves of feelings that said, you will not take me down. You've described how one of the most powerful experiences you had in making this tenacity more consistent, unshakable, and more foundational in your life was experiencing a group of people in a faith environment who fully accepted and embraced the entirety of you and openly admitted their own failures, struggles, addictions, and weaknesses. This became a very empowering environment that lifted 26 years of painful and oppressive secrecy in your life. Will you share some about this experience? Absolutely. So I had just uh, given birth to my beautiful daughter. I was 26 years old. And I took stock of my situation. And at that point in time, at 26, I was in a relationship with quite a narcissistic type man who did become my husband. And I, I lived 17 years in that type of environment. But I looked down at my daughter and I took stock of my situation. And I thought, I have got to do something here. My life was still in ruins. I had still not spoken about my abuse to anybody. And Ben, just out of sheer desperation, and I had been in a, a desperate state at many times throughout my life, but now, looking down at this beautiful human being, I was responsible for somebody else. So I opened up the phone book of all things, and I found a church that was just around the corner from me. I called them asked them when their next service would be and I turned up that Sunday morning with my beautiful baby in tow and unbelievably that day there were survivors on the platform. Now this church is a huge church. There was probably at least 3,000 people there this day and they had survivors on the platform speaking about their experience. What took my breath away that day and totally captivated me was that they spoke from a place of immense health and well-being. They were filled with joy. They completely embraced their experience and they shared openly with no shame, with no guilt. And I sat there in awe. I could not believe that there was you know, person after person sharing this, this experience that in, in my life I had been told, you, you know, you don't talk about those things. Those things are, are ugly, they're disgusting, they make you less of a person. You sweep those under the carpet and keep, their, keep them hidden. What will people think of you? And here I am listening to these amazing people speak from such a power of, of health and well-being. They had overcome their situation. They had families of their own. They were thriving. They were healthy. And here they were sharing from a place of total healing. 
And that was the moment that I thought to myself, maybe, just maybe, there is a way for me to get from where I am now in such pain and brokenness to even one step closer to where these people were. And I embraced it. And that was the moment that I took charge of my healing and wow. decided to change my circumstances. Amazing. And, and certainly there are those who may be listening who have been exploited by members of faith groups who use vulnerable environments sometimes as a tool for exploitation. But thankfully, you experienced something with these people that embodied integrity and honor and a commitment to healing and wholeness and an open acceptance of others to welcome you and others into health. And for that, I'm thankful. Another vital component that you, you talked about of your transition into the powerful and amazing woman you are today was the perspective you took when you looked into the eyes of your child. You decided that this child that you'd given life to deserved to have a phenomenal mother. Although you'd spent your entire life struggling and suffering up to that point, you committed yourself to doing whatever it took for you to be the type of parent that helped that child have the fullest life possible. You recognized the importance of self-care as this little life relied on you you talked in the past about shedding your ego in honor of this child's life and how important it was for you to recognize the connections that human beings have with each other, especially with those among us who are extremely vulnerable like you were when you were abused and how the actions we take or we don't take affect one another. I can't imagine how motivating or empowering that was for you to look in the, the child's eyes and to see so much of yourself in that child and the heroism of you saying, I am going to give to this child what I dreamed of when I was a child. Again, it's just that moment of looking at that and just being in absolute awe of how you decided at that point to change your life. There was no way, there was absolutely no way I was going to allow my child to experience anything that I had experienced as a child and I was willing to walk across hot coals and swim oceans, whatever it was going to take, to do everything in my power to change her future so that it did not resemble anything of what I experienced. And any time it was difficult and, and gosh, you know, it, there was many years to come, of course, of healing and self-discovery to get me to where I am today, but... There was nothing I was not willing to do. I was willing to go to the ends of the earth, and that's when I took my journey to the church and, and to the pastors there that, that I, again, I agree with you, Ben. I was very, very blessed with my experience. It was very positive. They accepted me for who I was in that moment. They met me where I was at. They embraced me. They never for one moment made me feel shamed or responsible for the things that happened to me. And they taught me how to be the best parent that I could be to this child because up until that point, I had not had a great example of what parenting looks like. In my inner being, had always wanted to be a mother, but because I did not have the skills modeled to me by anybody in my life, I very much had to learn that from scratch. And they were very, very amazing in the way that they taught me and they mentored me in that area. And I'm very, very lucky and very grateful today that my daughter, who just turned 17 yesterday actually, has had no, no experience of abuse or any type of harmful dysfunction in her life. And my son, who is 14 now, I am just so grateful 
every single day when I look at them that their life is so far removed from anything that I experienced growing up. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And today they remain my motivation, continuing to strive and learn and develop in any way I can. So one thing you did that was very unique as you made this transition was you began to strategically identify people in your life you wanted to emulate, people who embodied certain traits that you wanted to possess within you. How did you begin to access the powerful parts of who you are today by identifying who you wanted to be? Yeah, so it was, it was quite interesting because when I started to understand our identity and how who we see ourselves as, um, our sense of self, it determines the lens in which we view everything that happens around us. It, it forms our values and our beliefs and, and our worldview. And for me, my identity was so distorted. I did not know what my foundational values and beliefs were. I had to start really tapping into myself and stopping and, and reflecting as I went through this process. That is when I realized I have no idea who I am. And then I thought, well, how do you learn who you are? For most people, you look at people in your life that you admire, role models um, and, and friends. I did not have any, let alone any positive role models or friends up until that point in time. So in this new environment, as I became introduced to more and more people, healthy people, functioning people, I started looking up to particular people. That's when my, my role models were developed and created. And I observed in them character traits that I was drawn to, character traits of empathy and integrity and strength and openness. And these were the things that I took stock of and went, I want to be like that. That's what I want people to think about me when I leave the room. That's the type of support and help I want to provide people. I remember the way that they made me feel long after my interaction with them. That's how I wanted to make people feel long after they'd had a conversation with me or, or an interaction with me. That's when I became very, very certain that these were the particular character traits that I myself wanted to develop and that's what I began to, to understand and work towards. It wasn't about what I had gone without, it was about who I wanted to become. I can just see as I, I process what you're saying of someone who is starting to take joy in their life, get a sense of their value and transition from so much shame and a sense of worthlessness which brings us to that, that topic of suicide, of, of wanting to end one's life versus getting to the point where you're thriving in life. Certainly this had to take some time and there were challenges in your path as you made this transition. I believe in your book you've described how since age 10 you've grappled with suicidal thoughts and there were multiple suicide attempts early in your life. And in your book, Battle Scars Are Beautiful from Victim to Victory, you write... Suicide to me sounded like a sensible way at that point in my life to end the emotional and mental pain that I was floundering around in every day of my life. I felt lost and alone, disconnected from everyone and everything around me. To me, that result would mean the end of the consistent torment and silent debilitating agony that had become my existence. To me, dying, or how I fantasized about it in my 10-year-old brain, was to go to sleep and put an end to my pointless life. 
How many people are going through that? In my work as a first responder, I've been on scenes where people have completed this act and seen their families and seen how that affects people's lives and talked with people in some of my mental health work and crisis uh, resolution work where, where people are at that point where they are in such pain they just want it to stop. And how many people go through with that? I am just so thankful that you never were successful in those attempts and now you have such a voice that impacts people in that place and draws them out and reminds them of what's possible and what can be for them. As you progressed through so much internal and external pain to someone who values herself and are able now to access your skills, your gifts, your talents, is able to practice self-care and recognize your immense value and what helped you in those times Will you share some of the things that helped you to persevere, to survive those waves of desiring to end your life, to get to the point where you are now? What kept you afloat? Definitely. And then I'll always go back to the fact that our identity, who we see ourselves as, is such an immense part of how we conduct ourselves from day to day. So from my 10-year-old brain that you speak of there in the pages of the book and how I processed my situation, I could not see any end to the situation that I was in. And later on in life, when I did attempt to take my own life, again, I was in a situation where I just could not see any end beyond the, the consistent hopelessness and, and loneliness that I was going through. And I speak to, you know, countless people today and particularly young people about understanding that the situation that we're in today does not have to be the situation that we're in tomorrow. And it's that constant state of that cognitive dissonance that we get in those two contrasting concepts of I'm in this terrible place but people are telling me that there's something better and we have flickers, we have moments where we think maybe there is, maybe there is and then something happens to knock us back down. And my profound message and something that I always try to get out there is that you're not alone. Once people are brought into an environment or introduced to somebody or listen to something or hear somebody talking about the fact that there is people willing and able to help you that understand what you're experiencing. That's why I had to write my book. I had to share my story because one of the things that kept me so beaten down is that I never heard anybody share these types of experiences. I thought I was completely alone in the world and that I had to do this journey on my own. Now, the moment that I had people that extended an arm that showed me empathy and understanding and said, no, Renee, I will walk this with you, then my problems were, were even less than half. Then I had people to take on my shame and guilt and help me to see that that was not reality and that it did not have to be my continued reality. Once we start reaching out and once we start sharing and connecting with people, we have to do this in community. We have to bring the hurting into our world and shoulder this burden, walk it with them. And that's why I chose to be a mentor as opposed to a coach because I want to come alongside the person. I want to walk their journey with them. 
nobody knows what the other person's going through. So you have to be in a situation that says, I will meet you where you're at. Wherever you are, that's where we will start. And it's about inclusion and community and just letting them know that they're not on their own, that we are there to help them. If you could here, will you take us into those moments when you first began to realize how powerful that all your pain and suffering up to that point had made you? Take us into those moments where you began to realize you could not only relate to young women who had also been abused and exploited, but that your perspective, mentorship, and investment in them carried a weight that very few others could deliver because of what you'd survived. Absolutely. This again was a profound moment in my overcoming journey. I began volunteering uh, not long after I had started going to church and working on my own, uh, rebuilding myself and who I was and my, my strength. I started volunteering at, at a residential rehab centre for young girls who are experiencing a range of issues from mood disorders and mental health and eating disorders. And the majority of these young girls, and this is something that, again, goes into all of the uh, academic understanding that I gained in, in uh, university, the majority of these young girls had been abused, either sexually or physically, from a very young age. That was something that they, they very much had in common. And the more time that I, more one-on-one -on -one time I had with these young girls on a, on a Sunday afternoon, sitting under a tree, having a cup of coffee, and they were sharing with me their pain and, and their lack of self-worth, I was instantly reminded and, of my own situation and how I also thought. And I just began to share with them from a place of open honesty about my own lack of positive self-image and as I began to open up and share with them in my own, I guess, raw and honest way, I saw them that their eyes would widen and they would look at me with, with wonder and inquiry and curiosity and, and say, but what do you mean you, you went through that too? And I'm, it's yes, absolutely. And as I started to divulge those inner thoughts that I had, the confusion, that hopelessness, those dark places and the shame that I felt, that instant connection, that rapport was struck because they could see somebody else gets it, somebody else's experience, the things that I've been too afraid to give voice to. All of a sudden, like the day that I walked into church, here is someone giving voice to the situation that they now found themselves in and it gave them the hope that somebody understood and I began to share more and more of my story not from a place of um, you know this is something that's 20 years behind me girls I shared it from a place of I am still now going through the motions of myself putting my past in my past letting letting myself know that I'm worthy and I'm valuable and it all begins with you must see yourself as a worthy individual as a worthy human being and I am proof even in my infancy as I was back then and working through my journey that change is possible and I showed them my progression I explained where I was X amount of years ago and where I was that day talking to them we have to share that human raw open part of ourselves that's the storytelling that will change lives. That's the part that will impact and give hope and inspire courageous action. And that's why I have absolutely no issue sharing my story now because I have seen the impact. I myself was impacted 
that's what began my journey. And now I relish the opportunity to do it for others. Amazing. So tell the audience here about your book, when it's becoming available, the speaking that you're doing. Sure, Ben. So when I, uh, and you mentioned in the intro, when I began my very first business uh, in 2017, it was as an advanced resume writer. So that was my initial interaction with business, I guess, uh, as a founder and startup. And that naturally evolved as soon as I began writing my book last year. That naturally evolved. It's very strange once we start outworking our strengths and, and our, I call it my God-given purpose, but what, whatever we're on this earth to do, how doors will open for you. Now, when my publisher became aware of my story and said that he would like to uh, publish, publish my book, he also has his own humanitarian speaking bureau called the Imagine Academy. Now, this is a bureau of people like myself who have overcome amazing adversity and challenges and now speak from those places. Now, my, my, my keynote topic that, that people uh, usually contact me about is obviously what we were talking about and have been talking about today with that overcoming the abuse and trauma and the keys of, of strategizing of what to put into place to start building that resilience. The other areas that I speak about is teaching parents and caregivers how to equip their children to safeguard themselves against abusers. And a lot of this is based around this pre-notion, and, and it's a very outdated notion, and I call it the archaic stereotype of the abuser profile. You know, what, what we consider an abuser to be. And when I grew up, stranger danger and, and bad people were scary-looking men in a trench coat that hid in bushes and, you know, jumped out in the dark at children. And unfortunately today we know that that's not the case. Abusers are, are much closer. They're in our families. They're in our streets. They're in our places of influence and our schools. So my passion and my dedication is equipping parents and caregivers with the truth of how predators behave, of how they groom children, of areas where we have to be extremely vigilant in safeguarding our children. Even the communication we need to be having with our children from a very, very young age needs to change. We need to be equipping our children with the language and the, um, the personal strengths and, and understanding that there is uh, people out there that can harm them. However, there are things that you can do about them. We have to educate and aware our children. So a lot of the, a lot of the conversations that I have and a lot of the speaking opportunities that I get to have is by sharing my story and educating and equipping others to know how to safeguard themselves, their families, their children, but also the other unfortunate thing about the world we live in today, Ben, is that the majority of us know people either in our immediate family or our quite close uh, network of people that have been through either sexual, physical or emotional abuse. So once we let people know that we are a safe place, that we are people that support and empower survivors, that people have been through those types of situations. We create um, a healthy environment. So for me, a lot of the speaking uh, events that I, that I do, that I talk uh, in, uh, a lot of business organisations that I go in, is about making yourself and your environment a safe and positive place that people know that they can go to you if they're struggling. 
And I always tell people, you know, we have to be on the lookout. We, we often go through our lives, we're very busy. We, we get distracted, you know, between work and family commitments. But I always encourage people to just look around, keep your eyes open for people who are struggling, for people who you know that, hang on, their behaviour has changed a little bit. I wonder if they're okay. Have the audacity and the bravery and courage to extend empathy and go over to that person, you know, whether it be at your work or at a social club that you might be involved in and say, hey, are you okay? You know, did you, can I take you out for a cup of coffee? We have to be breaking down these barriers because abuse and trauma is everywhere. And the more we become open and plugged in and put our phones down for a moment and, and look around and take stock of our immediate environment, it is amazing how many people you will encounter that are going through something, that's going through a tough time, that just by offering a kind word or a smile or an invitation for a cup of coffee, you could be the conduit in the beginning of somebody feeling worthy, of someone feeling valuable, enough for them to want to, um, you know, connect to their own life again and think that they have something to offer and that they're not isolated. And it's not difficult. So a lot of the things that I talk about are very, very practical. They're not greatly profound. They're very practical. They're things that we can put into place today that any of us can do. I love it. I love the world you're creating. Won't the human race make powerful advances when we can be sincere, authentic people who experience empathetic, empowering environments where we can be open, unstigmatized, and free to share the realities of our experiences without judgment and with a commitment to creating this finer world that you're creating for ourselves and our children. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. Okay. Who are you thankful for today? My children. Hands down. (laughs) And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for the air in my lungs, Ben. I I keep things very, very simple. I'm so grateful that I just have a chance to live another day. How do you fuel the fire within you? Constantly, constantly, constantly feeding my soul and my mind and my spirit on very positive influences. So, you know, people that empower us, that inspire tenacity and resilience. I'm constantly listening to podcasts like yours, Ben. I'm constantly (laughs) filling my mind and my space and my environment with positivity, with people that I admire, with messages of strength and hope. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? Our innate, and when I say innate, those those parts of ourselves that that we can't deny. I I always look at myself with with shame, and the things that I looked at at with shame, I now embrace and admire most of all. So my voice is something that I was told from a young age should be silent. I now use my voice to empower and inspire and save lives. So my, my voice now is something that I'm so, so grateful for. And what are you doing today you never thought you could? Well, <laughs> talking to you, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, Ben, we, we touched on that, that people-pleasing, that, that constant state of not feeling good enough. 
So I always had to pretend to be better or something that I wasn't or put on this mask, this false self, uh, to try to please others. Now I get to be authentically myself and by doing that, the doors that have opened, the opportunities that have been created, the ways that I can now connect with people that I never would have been able to before has ultimately not only changed my life, but I have no idea how many others. So by being your transparent, honest, authentic self, I never thought I could be because I didn't think it would be embraced. And look at look at it now. Right. <laughs> that, that, that's the one thing that uh, has enabled me to do what I do every single day. And what will you do tomorrow that you never thought you could? I am speaking to public arenas of more and more people. And I, I guess most of us, or many of us, share this fear. <laughs> It's public, public speaking sphere. And very, very recently, as, as recently as, as two weeks ago, I did my very first live discussion with no notes. I just put them down and I thought, no, just go for it, Renee. And, and it went profoundly well. And as of tomorrow, I'm putting together a new signature keynote message to reach more and more people. And I never thought that, A, that I would be speaking to people for starters, let alone public speaking events and that's what I'm working on tomorrow. Every day is about conquering a new sphere for me, Ben. Every single day is working towards that better person, that stronger person that I can be. I love it. How can people learn more about you, your book and your work? ReneeMichelle.com is my website where you will find all of the details about the book. The book is due for release next month. We only have a couple of weeks to go before we start launching into freestyle, which is very, very, very exciting. So that all of that information is available on my website. Contact details are on my website. Just jump on there. There's a heap of resources and tools that will help you live your professional and personal life in the best way possible. And send me an email via there. I would love to hear from people. Any questions, any feedback they have, I'm always open and I respond to every single email I get personally. So many men have tried to silence you or harm you or take away your self-worth. As a man, it is an honor to share your priceless value, your brilliance, your depth, and your passion to serve others. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Ben, and thank you everybody for listening. I'm still very, very honored to be speaking to your amazing audience today. Get Up Nation, if you are in the deep darkness of believing you have no value, take the hand of those powerful men and women who have emerged into the light of embracing their value, who possess the bravery and compassion to reach back into the darkness they once knew and heave you forward, setting your feet on the solid ground of knowing that your life has immeasurable value. They can teach you how to experience the awe and power of accessing the wealth within you, the wealth of who you are. You will watch it unfold together and celebrate without ceasing. Learn from Renee Michelle in her new book, Battle Scars Are Beautiful, From Victim to Victory. Available at Renee Michelle.